Major funding for NJ Spotlight News is provided in part by NJM Insurance Group, serving the insurance needs of residents and businesses for more than 100 years, and by the PSCG Foundation. Tonight on NJ Spotlight News, keeping hope alive. Residents in the borough of Tenafly gather every Friday to remind the world 20-year-old Idan Alexander is still being held by Hamas. The world cannot stop thinking about the hostages. I email President Biden every day. We have to keep them on the top of our minds. Plus, lighting up a compromise in the casino smoking ban, a new proposal that keeps smokers rolling the dice in Atlantic City. So this is about business preservation, job preservation, and moving incrementally to work, work environment that is going to be better. Also, negotiating prescription drug prices. If New Jersey wants a seat at the table to keep your drug prices down, just ask the governor. The main holdup, as I understand it, is that the governor has not named members to this Drug Affordability Council, which is the state-level board that will dig into the costs of prescription drugs. And sounding the alarm, a desperate call to remedy a nationwide shortage of primary care doctors. If we keep going down the path where we're going, we're not going to have any primary care clinicians left in the state of New Jersey. NJ Spotlight News begins right now. From NJ PBS Studios, this is NJ Spotlight News with Brianna Venozzi. Good evening and thanks for joining us this Friday night. I'm Brianna Venozzi. Lines of communication between the White House and Israel remain open, but it doesn't appear to be getting negotiators any closer to a hostage release deal. President Biden today told reporters he's had extensive conversations with Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu over the last few days, telling the Prime Minister a temporary ceasefire is needed to secure the safe release of the Israeli hostages still being held captive by Hamas. Biden is also urging Israel's military to hold off on a land invasion in Rafah while talks continue. In Tenafly, New Jersey, discussions around releasing the hostages are deeply personal. Every week, a group meets to walk through the borough, chanting and keeping a spotlight on the Israelis who are still being held captive, including one of their own, 20-year-old Tenafly High School graduate Idan Alexander. Ted Goldberg has the story. A weekly walk in Tenafly is raising awareness for the hundreds captured by Hamas on October 7th, including Tenafly native Edon Alexander. The world cannot stop thinking about the hostages. Every day I uh, wear my pin up here. I change the numbers for the number of days that they've been held in captivity. Posted on Instagram, I email President Biden every day. We have to keep them on the top of our minds. Every week, anywhere from 30 people to hundreds of people meet up walk through Tenafly, and record a video demanding help for hostages held by Hamas. All those videos are captured from all the groups around the world. They're made into like five or six minute videos. So you'll see from town to town, people uh, standing up and saying, bring them home now, uh, name the town. And they are then sent out to the various families to show them um, that everybody cares and supports and is with them. Elon Kravik is one of the walkers here trying to keep hope alive and bring attention to Edon Alexander, who was captured by Hamas while serving in the Israel Defense Forces. 
and you definitely want to support our community. Um, it's a very tough time. I myself am Israeli. Um, I was born there. I still have a lot of family there. So um, it's a little bit of your time that you can just kind of put out and raise awareness and um, support the family. Run for Their Lives is a global organization. Roberto Simrat organized the Tenafly chapter because of his personal connection to Alexander. I swim with a gentleman whose grandson is best friends with Idan, one of the hostages, and you just feel you, you want to do something to help. The weekly walks through Tenafly run 18 minutes each. As organizers tell me, that's not a number chosen at random. 18 minutes is a special number in Judaism. Uh, it's, uh, it equates to uh, high, which is life. Uh, and the idea was uh, 18 minutes before, on Fridays, before Shabbat starts. While Shabbat is a day of rest for Jewish people, the folks here aren't resting. It's been overwhelming, uh, the number of people who joined. One of the walks, we had a thousand people when Idan's parents uh, were here um, to talk to, to everybody, and we, we gathered a lot of people to show the support for them. It's very heartwarming to see that people are very um, supportive of it and that are coming out in strong uh, numbers to show their love um, and kind of just kind of, you know, create a community around here to uh, bring attention to it around the world. Alexander graduated from Tenafly High School two years ago. He's one of about 100 people held hostage by Hamas, as folks hold out hope that he can make it home safely. In Tenafly, I'm Ted Goldberg, NJ Spotlight News. There's yet another compromise being proposed in the push to ban smoking on Atlantic City's casino floors. This one from South Jersey Senator John Berzicelli looks to appease the casino industry and other groups against an all-out ban by allowing smoking to continue with some restrictions. It's an alternative to the litany of options that have already been presented. But as senior correspondent Brenda Flanagan reports, the bill is dead on arrival for one of the largest unions, representing casino workers. Workers pushing for smoke-free casinos thought they'd finally hit the jackpot last month when New Jersey's Senate Health Committee approved a complete ban that would force Atlantic City's nine casinos to snuff out smoking on all gaming floors. But now there's competition from a so-called compromise bill. It'd still let gamblers light up, but in restricted areas, smoking opponents are certainly lit. I don't know if the casino executives are aware of this, but smoke goes where it wants, which is not acceptable. But for some reason, in the state of New Jersey, you put on a dealer's uniform, it's just totally fine to get secondhand smoke blowing your face. Dan Vincent's with the United Auto Workers, which represents casino dealers and slot techs at Bally's, Tropicana, and Caesars. All Atlantic City casinos currently permit smoking on 25% of the gaming floor. This new bill continues that 25% limit and allows smoking at slot machines located at least 15 feet away from live dealers. It also creates enclosed smoking rooms where workers could opt out to avoid smoke. Let's build compromise on it. Let's get you know everybody to the point where there's no more smoking at tables. Dealers don't have to deal with it, um, but not have the huge impact that would potentially cost you know upwards of the loss of 3,000 jobs. Senate Republican Vince Palestina started drafting a compromise bill, but dropped it after UAW protesters showed up at his office near Atlantic City. Gloucester County Democrat John Berzicelli is now sponsoring the measure. Why? So everyone's affected by the health of this industry, which serves not only this region of the state, but the entire state. 
this casino industry and what it what what it what it uh, sends off in contributions to run other programs is significant. He predicts a total casino smoking ban will struggle to pass the full Senate. And even though surveys show casinos in other states have banned smoking and still continue to thrive, business leaders cite industry warnings that a complete smoking ban could steer Atlantic City customers to gamble in Pennsylvania, causing thousands of layoffs back in Jersey. So when we talk about economic impact, the closest casino to South Jersey residents is 50% smoking, which is already more than Atlantic City currently has, which is why the conversation about economic impact is very different than it was even five years ago. So this is about business preservation, job preservation, and moving incrementally to work, work environment that is going to be better. The casino associations on board stating the industry's grateful to the bill's sponsors for introducing this legislation, and we look forward to finding a meaningful compromise that will prioritize public health and economic stability while protecting jobs. But Senator Joe Vitale, who sponsored the total smoking ban bill, is refusing to post the compromise measure for discussion in his committee. The casino industry's done a good job at inventing an argument to deceive lawmakers, Vitale said. There are thousands who don't come to Atlantic City to gamble because of the smoking. Business would likely increase if they banned smoking altogether. Vitale expects a full Senate vote soon. Vincent says the UAW will only back a full ban. This is our people's lives and it ain't going away. I'm Brenda Flanagan and J Spotlight News. Newark is now part of a nationwide lawsuit against automakers Kia and Hyundai, joining 19 other major cities suing the car companies for defects in the vehicles that led to thefts. The lawsuit, which also includes Chicago, New York and Milwaukee, among others, claims Kia and Hyundai intentionally failed to include engine immobilizers in their vehicles for more than a decade. That's the anti-theft technology designed to make a car harder to steal. The suit claims after a video exposing the defect was posted on social media, car thefts spiked. In Newark and elsewhere, city officials say the surge in thefts also led to an increase in violent incidents. Newark's complaint points out that many of the models are designed with lower income workers in mind, and when they're stolen, it's that much more of a burden on the owner. The lawsuit is seeking damages from the automakers alleging fraud, neglect, and deceptive marketing practices. More than six months after Governor Murphy signed a law giving the state more power to negotiate prescription drug prices, not much has changed, and it may still be a few years before the public sees the benefit of this new transparency and oversight. That's partly because the Murphy administration has yet to nominate members to a newly created Drug Affordability Council and missed a January deadline to do so. Our Washington correspondent Ben Hulak looked into what's delaying the process and joins me from D.C. with the latest. Ben, this was really a breakthrough that both the state and federal government got some new oversight into this process. Why is it, though, that we're seeing it take so long? A lot of this is just uh, how the language was, was written, and I'll start on the federal side. The idea of having Medicare negotiate as a block, as a, a sort of significant uh, arguing force on behalf of tens of millions of Americans, that's been a long-held goal by medical groups, consumer groups for decades. Um, this is really new. 
We will, of course, hear the, the prices and the price will go into effect in 2026 of these newly negotiated drugs, but this has never been done. And that's just the lay of the land federally. And the delays in uh, changes to prescription drugs at the state level um, and, and the measures that, that New Jersey has taken, um, the main holdup, as I understand it, is that the governor has not named members to this Drug Affordability Council, which is the state level board that will dig into the costs of prescription drugs and uh, sort of peel back what to this point has largely been a pretty opaque process. And in fact, there was a January deadline for the governor to do so. He did not. What are you hearing about what's holding up the process? Uh, I got nothing on the record on that matter from the governor's office. From advocates, they're just keen to see this process get going. There are a handful of other states. Maryland and Colorado are sort of known as the most aggressive and farthest ahead in this process. But at the state level, it's largely been a quiet process. So separate for us, if you can, Ben, what we will see change, uh, both from the federal level and the state level, because there are three drugs, as I understand it, um, that are widely used, whose monthly cost will now be capped. What are they, and, and what will we see at the state level? At the state level, the uh, I believe the, the three items you're thinking of mentioning are uh, inhalers, EpiPens, and insulin. And those are, those are sort of medical devices, medicine that are broadly known by the public. Uh, people, people know what those are. Um, and we'll, th those, those process, th those caps will roll out in the coming um, year, I believe. Uh, I, I, I really delved more into the price transparency elements of this trio of bills that Murphy signed last year in my, in my reporting. You have a lot of people talking about these pharmacy benefit managers and the roles that they play in setting the standards in the market. Is that the, the crux of the issue for New Jersey consumers when we're looking at prescription prices? The, I, I'm not going to plead ignorance on that, but that is, that is really why this is such a fascinating topic. The, within the medical community, you have the pharmacy benefit managers, the drug companies, the insurers, you have government bodies, and they're all, the, the, other than the government, the rest of the parties are sort of blaming each other for why prices are high. And it's a bit of a carousel of finger pointing. So the interesting thing here is that at the state level and the federal level, we now may see behind the curtain of how prices are actually set. And the fact that drug prices are largely set in a murky, complicated process is really no good. That's not benefiting the patients. That's not benefiting the public. Certainly. Ben Hulak for us. Ben, thank you so much. My pleasure. Thanks. If you've had a hard time finding a primary care doctor in recent years, you're not alone. There's a nationwide shortage of general practitioners. And a new report from New Jersey's Healthcare Quality Institute finds the problem is even worse in our state. There are a number of factors at play, but it comes down to one familiar issue the money. Senior correspondent Joanna Gagas reports. If we keep going down the pathway we're going, 
We're not going to have any primary care clinicians left in the state of New Jersey. Healthcare experts are sounding the alarm on the primary care physician shortage they say has reached a crisis point in New Jersey. Some forced into early retirement because of COVID, but far more new clinicians are opting for specialty practices that pay much better. Primary care physicians really practice what's called continuous care. New Jersey Healthcare Quality Institute's Linda Schwimmer explains it's a way of treating patients that builds long, trusting relationships over time, but primary care doesn't get reimbursed in the same way that specialists do. It has been uh, very much fee-for-service code-based, so when you can do a procedure, when you can intervene in some way, that's a billable event. Also, the complexity of those events or interventions um, are reimbursed at higher rates. And yet, primary care has proven to be one of the most critical pieces in healthcare, says family medicine doctor Alfred Talia. That has been demonstrated to reduce mortality, to improve outcomes for people with chronic illnesses, eliminate disparities, and actually reduce costs all in one has been undervalued in the state. We're now at the 48th out of the 50 states in primary care reimbursement here in New Jersey. That's that's outrageous and that's driven a lot of providers out of the state. The Healthcare Quality Institute just released a report outlining several steps New Jersey can take to achieve success that states like Rhode Island, Massachusetts, and Oregon have that reimburse both fee-for-service along with per-member, per-month reimbursements known as capitated fees. What we want is for all of the health plans across the state to really commit to how are they going to get involved and support these hybrid models of payment. For instance, CMS, Center for Medicaid and Medicare Services, has had a model called Primary Care First for a while now. Very few of the health plans in New Jersey participated in that model. The state health benefit program has been a great supporter of primary care. We would like to know how has that gone? They should be reporting data. Without these changes, primary care practitioners like Dr. Nicole Henry Dindial say their business models will soon implode because the workload required just to keep a primary practice open is unsustainable. If you squeeze the doctors and particularly primary care to the point where we can't keep our practices open or we have no choice but to work for bigger entities, you're losing access and you're losing it in in all different areas. You're losing it in small communities, in the underserved areas. You're not really encouraging the recruitment of physicians that look like the patients that we need to treat. Yvonne Yi is in her third year of residency and is facing the decision now of whether to practice in New Jersey. Without these changes, she says the current situation will affect our ability to practice um, medicine well and be able to care for our patients well and to keep talent within the state because they feel that they are not being compensated fairly and they can seek better opportunities elsewhere then that's going to overall have a very widespread effect towards our health as a state. And says the report, with an aging population, the situation will only worsen without significant and speedy changes. I'm Joanna Gagas, NJ Spotlight News.
In our Spotlight on Business report, a milestone today in the long-planned construction of the Gateway program. The first phase of the infrastructure project got approval this morning from the Gateway Development Commission, which will start this spring. That'll kick off the engineering, surveying, and design plans to build a new two-track tunnel under the Hudson River, rehab the existing tracks in the North River Tunnel, replace the Portal North Bridge, and complete a rail right-of-way project in the Hudson yards. The goal is to update the most heavily used passenger train line in the U.S. between New York and New Jersey. Phase one is going to cost about $284 million, but commissioners this morning pointed out that both states involved are now paying significantly less than anticipated. The Garden State will kick in roughly $308 million total for the project. The original estimate was about $2.4 billion. The commission says it's just months away from getting a full fund grant agreement from the federal government. And once that happens, phase two, that's the construction, that'll get started this fall. On Wall Street, it was a complicated week for the markets with inflation ticking up and retail sales down. Here's how trading numbers closed. And tune in this weekend to NJ Business Feed with Raven Santana. She marks Black History Month by sitting down with John Harmon from the African American Chamber of Commerce and speaks to two black female entrepreneurs about what's driving more black women to open businesses and how they're helping mentor the next generation. Watch it Saturday at 5 p.m. and Sunday morning at 9.30 on NJPBS. Finally, civility in politics. Does it still exist? This week on Chatbox, senior political correspondent David Cruz talks with former New Jersey U.S. Senator Bill Bradley about the state of our political discourse, from the ever-growing political divide in the nation to the contentious presidential election. The former 2000 presidential candidate himself says that despite all the negativity, there's reason for hope. Take a listen. When I left the Senate, I pointed out what I thought were the flaws of the system that's back in the in 96, 1996. Way too much money in politics. Yeah. And there still is way too much money in politics. But that's courtesy of the Supreme Court, you know, and one of the dumbest decisions in American history, Citizens United, saying yeah. money is speech. You can't limit the amount of money you spend in the campaign. That's, that's the, the core problem. And then it's exacerbated by social media and special interest groups that used to be primarily interested only in their economic interests. And now, of course, they're interested in ideological interests. But the result is the same. It divides us. It puts us into camps. And that's not where America is at its best. I mean, we all came from all over, and here we are, and we got to live together, and we got to do so in a way that allows us to prosper. In our previous segment, I was... Uh saying how I was dreading uh, this presidential election uh, that's upcoming. Am I being too dramatic? Uh, no, I don't think you're being too dramatic. This is the most uh, consequential election of my lifetime. And uh, I lived through a lot of consequential elections in the 60s and 70s and 80s. Um, and so I think that this is a lot at stake at this election. 
Um, you know, are we going to do what we learned from our parents or are we going to be angry? Are we going to be motivated out of honor or grievance? I mean, basically, uh, we all know what's the best thing to do. The question is, do we have the courage to do it, to trust each other? We have to, we have to see each other as human beings, not as cardboard cutouts that prevent us from sharing what we really care about in life. You know, uh, Senator, that, that sounds great. Um, and I'm with you there, but it seems so difficult to get anybody from either camp to just have a coffee together. Or is that just the perception that we get by the people who want it to be so that we don't get together? I think it's fanned by the media. It's fanned by some self-interested politicians and a lot of self-interested interest groups on the right primarily, but also on the left. And I think that, um, you know, it, there are enough people in the Congress who want to do the right thing that there's still reason for hope. Now, we're in a terrible system dominated by money, as I mentioned earlier, where we're more and more polarized uh, by, by social media, by us thinking of the small things. I always like to think kind beats anger. And that's not a soft thing to say. Because to be kind, you have to be very strong. And I think this election is going to be a little bit of that, kind versus anger. You can watch the full interview with former Senator Bill Bradley on Chatbox this weekend. That's Saturday night at 6.30 and Sunday morning at 10.30 on NJPBS. And on Reporters Roundtable this weekend, David talks to Republican Budget Senator Declan O'Scanlan about the harsh realities facing New Jersey's budget and whether the state is headed for a fiscal cliff. Then a panel of local reporters break down this week's political headlines. Watch it Saturday at 6 p.m. and Sunday morning at 10 right here on NJPBS. I'm Brianna Venozzi for the entire NJ Spotlight News team. Thanks for being with us. Have a great weekend. We'll see you back here on Monday. New Jersey Education Association, making public schools great for every child. And RWJ Barnabas Health. Let's be healthy together. Our future relies on more than clean energy. Our future relies on empowered communities, the health and safety of our families and neighbors of our schools and streets. The PSEG Foundation is committed to sustainability, equity, and economic empowerment. Investing in parks, helping towns go green, supporting civic centers, scholarships, and workforce development that strengthen our community.